breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. It is always good with all of you. Thank you for joining. This is where we talk about the battle for reform, the battle against radical Islam, and the parallels that you see in the battle against radical Islam that we see in the other political battles of the day, if you will, the collectivist concepts, the identity politics, the radicalization of the left and other movements in the world that we see now mirroring a lot of what I've talked about on this podcast before. And week to week, I hope to be able to use uh, various aspects of our battle at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy to bring you to speed with what I think should be our strategy domestically and globally. Because I think from a perspective of a patriot, somebody who not only loves this country, but believes through the essence of my soul of the value of its system, of its constitutional system and separation of church and state separation of powers, that ultimately this is the solution against political Islam or Islamism, which I believe is the main radicalization element that radicalizes Muslims all over the world. Now, to my Jewish brothers and sisters and friends, may you have had a blessed commemoration of Holocaust Remembrance Day, and may we never forget, may it never happen again. And every day may we pray that scourges of humanity, on humanity, like Nazism, fascism, Islamism, that radicalize, Arabism, that radicalize their individuals, their followers in a way that makes them demonize the Jewish community, that makes them demonize Judaism and the faithful, be defeated, be thrown in the dustbin of history so that anti-Semitism can end. And every year on January 27, we remember, we remember the reality, the truth that happened in the Holocaust. There's so many Holocaust deniers out there, and it's, again, a symptom. The denial of the reality of the over 6 million Jews that were horrifically slaughtered in the Holocaust reminds us that mankind left to the dominance of evil will do horrific things, and that it is, as the old quotation says, for good men to do nothing, evil will triumph, right? And this is what we remember every year. So my prayers to the Jewish community, may you live in strength, may you live in peace, and may we all live together not only in harmony, but to see the end of anti-Semitism and all the hate that exists out there. We still see today, we still see today that it, uh, as, as politics flares and identity politics flares, the Jewish community is at the head of the spear. That regardless of what racial and ideological divides exist, it seems that the Jewish community is targeted by far and away the most. And we saw a quote from Linda Sarsour, one of the Islamist, uh, uh, I believe, radicals uh, of the progressivist Islamist movement. And she said this week, 
oh yeah, you know, while while you know Islamophobia is endemic and deep and runs across society, and I'm I'm paraphrasing obviously. She says anti-Semitism is not. I mean, talk about propaganda. Talk about false information. That is completely false information. There's nothing more endemic than anti-Semitism across centuries. We've seen it in history from the time of recorded history that uh, uh, anti-Semitism has reared its head over and over and over. And now it disguises itself as anti-Zionism being anti-Israel and ultimately it's still the same pathology which is the demonization of the Jewish people and of the Jewish faith. And I was thinking back about some of the themes that we discussed last time as I was talking to you about the terrorist that held the synagogue hostage for a number of hours until he was exterminated and his Islamist ideology that was radicalized through the Free Afia Siddiqui movement and ultimately that issue was ignored by most of the media, ignored by the fact that many of the mainstream Muslim organizations have glorified and lionized Afia Siddiqui as being a victim, a martyr, a heroine. Even the Pakistani government, Imran Khan, has called for her to be called daughter of the nation. No, not Malala, not other heroes that have been Nobel Peace Prize winners that fight for women's education and liberty. No, Afia Siddiqui is daughter of the nation. And these systematic lionization of militant Al-Qaeda sympathizers and operatives doesn't seem to phase the left media, traditional media, in exposing how Muslims are, are, are radicalized. And the reality is, is that it's the tip of the spear. And we saw, I talked to you last time specifically about that movement, but now I want to, let's, let's pull the telescope back and look at the 80,000-foot view from space, the 30,000-foot view from the flights. What are, what are they, what is the reality of many of these individuals? Why is it that, and I want to I talk to you about so many of these former radicals that come out of prison and, and claim that they've seen the light, but then they actually do not present a robust anti-Islamist message. There are a few exceptions. Uh, Majid Nawaz was one of them. Um, but I say but because uh, at the end of the day, uh, there's always some limitations to it. And uh, I'm going to go through a list of a few of them and show you how there's a disservice that's done when we set the bar too low for the Muslim community. The lower we set the bar, which is, oh, former Al-Qaeda, oh, but now they've seen the way, so Muslims are good people. Really? This is the bar for us, which is people that have joined organizations that have declared war openly to destroy America, destroy our government, and destroy our institutions like Al-Qaeda or ISIS, and somehow when the lady ISIS comes back, wants to be with her child, media glorifies them, Rolling Stone puts them on the cover and makes their picture appear to be so innocent, 
even though there's video of them proclaiming their hate for America, the demonization of Jews and anti-Semitism that they have running through their blood. But that doesn't matter as they've now found the error of their ways, supposedly, and she wants to join her son here, be a mother, but yet she's willing to accept her sentence. Thankfully, the government a month or two ago denied her entry into the U.S., and she's still stuck in a camp. I think that's a mild punishment. Uh, She should be tried for treason in the United States, but she's not because she was denied ever having been a citizen because she was the daughter of, I believe, an ambassador, somebody who was a diplomat at the time, and thus really didn't fit the criteria. Children of diplomats do not become citizens in the United States, even if they're born here. They have to apply for it. So thankfully, she was denied, and that's the least that could have happened to her. But many have, you know, the Council on American Islamist Radicalization, I'm sorry, the Council on American Islamic Relations defended her. Hassan Shibli was her attorney and called for her to be brought in because that's the Constitution. And thanks to Secretary Pompeo, that was prohibited initially through a couple of court proceedings. And now recently, even with the Biden administration, she was denied return. Full stop. That's it. But yet we find so-called mainstream Islamic organizations defending these radical ISIS operatives, as if somehow being an American Muslim means we defend those who declare war on our country. Those who basically are the dregs of society when it comes to Americanism and belief in the societal contract that is being an American citizen. And I'm getting sick and tired, and I think it's time for all of you to understand exactly Put all of these cases together. Last podcast, I talked to you about the Afia Siddiqui case and the free Afia movement. Now I'm going to run through a few of the cases out there, one after the other, that these radical Islamist groups who portray themselves as regular old mosque-going Muslim, American Muslims, and somehow that's mainstream. There was the case of Tariq Mahena, very similar to Afia Siddiqui. Now again, Mahana was defended by the progressivists when he was convicted in 2012. The New York Times came out on his defense, and I'll tell you about that in a, in a minute. But in Boston, the arrest and conviction of Tariq Mahana was seen on April 12, 2012. An important teachable moment when it comes to radicalization of Muslims and their ideology. This guy, just like Afia Siddiqui, was an MIT grad, a pharmacist, and almost exactly one year previous to his conviction, received uh, 17 years, one year before, I'm sorry, before the Boston bombing, received 17 years in prison for aiding Al-Qaeda. His arrest, trial, and conviction was was reviled by the left and Islamist groups alike, including a bizarre New York Times editorial. There was a website, I haven't gone to it in a while, it was called freetarik.com. This guy gave a speech, which I couldn't believe the judge allowed. Go back and find it. When he was sentenced, he was allowed to say a few words, a few words supposedly on his behalf, and he gave what I think was a 10-minute speech that he had written out and became 
posted virally on the internet about how the West is evil and democratic institutions are not democratic, they're anti-Muslim. And he went on and on about Jewish conspiracies and continued to articulate in a fascist, supremacist way, an erudite understanding of the supremacism of Islamism. And I say erudite because this guy is not an idiot. He was able to move, just like Sayyid Qutb, thought to be the father, the ideological father of Al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood. The Islamists have, in their founding fathers, if you will, radical Islamists that are poets. Tariq Mahana had a, a, a large amount of poetry online and continued to write how he was victimized and targeted, even though the evidence was was unmistakable. And he was convicted of 17 years, but even from prison, he was continuing to radicalize Muslims. The New York Times, in a op-ed by Andrew March on April 21, 2012, ended the op-ed by saying, the act, the act, he said, we have the resources to prevent acts of violence without threatening the First Amendment. The Mahana prosecution is a frightening and unnecessary attempt to expand the kinds of religious and political speech that the government can criminalize. The First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston should at least invalidate Mr. Mahana's conviction for speech and reaffirm the Supreme Court's doctrines in Brandenburg and Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project. Otherwise, the difference between what I do every day and what Mr. Mahana did is about the differences between the thoughts in our heads and the feelings in our heart. And I don't trust prosecutors with that jurisdiction. So the point of this editorial at the time, almost 10 years ago, was that Mahana never really connected or communicated with Al-Qaeda. And he did note that he was grotesque. He online had verbiage that basically lauded the targeting and the, and the killing of American civilians. On his website, the government made central to the conspiracy charge that Mr. Mahana was uh, convicted of, that he contested the common jihadi argument that American civilians are targets, but he called for the targeting of foreign occupying militaries and justified that and rejected, however, the Al-Qaeda doctrine, supposedly, that the civilian citizens of a foreign country at war with Muslims can be targeted. His doctrine, Tariq Mahanez, was that those who fight Muslims may be fought, not those who have the same nationality as those who fight. So he basically was calling for war against our military, against occupiers, and God knows where that gray area went. And he lost his case. But his case became cause celeb. Not as prominent as the cause celeb of Afia Siddiqui, but it became cause celeb. And read and listen to his speeches because it is essential to this narrative that I'm trying to explain to you. And then into the mix is not only, the, you know, then there's the case of Jamal Amin, the, the cop killer in Atlanta that so many claim was inappropriately targeted. And this is, again, the radical, uh, uh, some in the black Muslim movement and, and Black Panthers and others. 
that case is also a cause celeb, even though he was clearly appropriately convicted and a horrifically evil human being. We have Imam Lukman from Detroit. Lukman's case was supposedly care called for the exhumation of his body to re-autopsy him because they believed that the FBI went in and there with the intent to kill him, even though clearly his Islamic State group, a separatist group in Detroit, not affiliated with ISIS, but basically a separate Islamic State entity, identified itself as separatist, was getting ready for war, built up arms, and with the ATF, FBI, and others, they raided his compound, and he started firing, killed an FBI dog, and then he was killed in the, in the melee. And this somehow becomes a case that the Council on American-Islamic Relations wants to defend and feels that he was targeted because he was Muslim, never mind his ideology. Many of us called, many of us called, for these organizations to at least talk about how radical and radicalizing their ideology is of individuals like Imam Luqman and others who seem to be magnets for previous prisoners that were Muslim that are radicalized in prison and elsewhere. We saw the same with the cell in New York. On and on. And then we look at so many prominent counterterrorism individuals and we see sort of this this phenomena now this this is a little different now i went through some of the smattering of cases that are caused celebs of folks that are in prison convicted etc then you've got groups of folks that come out of prison and now claim to be reformed and are going to work to target radical groups al-qaeda etc and as we go through the list of them, every one of them, and you'll find I haven't worked with that many of them, actually, because I think that obviously they have something to contribute, just like any former criminal who perhaps is reformed, as long as they're speaking the truth and open and honest about their reformation, but many of them aren't. And nobody really pushed them because they never really understood deeply the radicalization process and what parts of Islam radicalized them and which parts didn't, so they come back out and actually do not condemn the actual root cancers, which is central hadith and other, other scripture that radicalize them. No, they find other peripheral marginal things that allow them to become celebrities within many Muslim movements and yet also pretend to be counter-terrorists. So, are they speaking the truth? Do they speak the truth? I don't think so. And what are some of these examples? Oh, look at Yasser Qadi claims to have been radicalized as, a, as an al, near Al-Qaeda, Salafi, etc. Lived in Medina for 10 years and is an imam and um, is, I think, one of the most negative radicalizing influences because of his following in America. And in the West, Yasser Qadi, Q-A-D-H-I. Look at his feed. I think he has, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of followers. I know that when he and I have uh, had disagreement, he becomes quite emotive and radical. 
identifying me with conspiracy theories and other things that he might have. And the point is, is that the folks that then follow after he targeted me, his followers are some of the most militant types that uh, I've seen and pretty impressively radicalized, if you will. Was with the Al-Maghrib Institute, he still might be, and and bottom line is, is, is has a number of quotations and writings, etc., in which he clearly has a, a lack of love, if you will, for Western democracy, secular states, liberal ideology, and is quite fundamentalist, is quite orthodox in his Salafism. And yet the New York Times portrayed him as one of the most influential counter-radicalizers because he came from within that community, because he understands them and they listen to them and they listen to him and he speaks their language. Again, we as Muslims can do better. We can do better. I remember when Qadi... Uh, went ballistic on me because I had the temerity to be critical of Muhammad Ali's history of rejecting service in the U.S. military. And I had written a piece for the Federalist in which I criticized Senator Rand Paul for wanting to put forth legislation that ended selective service, ended the draft possibility, if you will, and did it in the name of Muhammad Ali as a memorial to him after the boxer and the philanthropist who had did a lot of wonderful work on Parkinson's disease and, and other things on, for youth and against drug use, etc. God bless him for all that work. But when it came to loyalty to the United States as expressed through his case, I think it was Muhammad Ali versus the U.S., I, I, I found a lot of distaste for that. It's human. It's appropriate for me as a Muslim to disagree with the fact that this American Muslim in the 70s or whenever it was, the early 70s, late 60s, used our faith to get out of military service, and we are not a pacifist faith that ultimately he picked and choose, chose which war he wanted and claimed that Islam prohibited him from doing so. And if you look through, I talked about it in my piece many years ago. I was disgusted that that would be the legacy of probably the most popular American Muslim in history, was somehow telling American Muslim kids that they didn't have to serve in our military. That is horrifically radicalizing. Because the way to defeat political Islam is to teach American Muslims that there's nothing that protects their freedom more than living in a country like America that defends every individual equally and gives them the ability to interpret the faith of Islam like they wish, not like the way the Saudis force their citizens or the Iranians force their citizens or the Afghani Taliban force its citizens. No, American freedom is the route to either reject or accept Islam in the way you see, and that is Americanism and that is anti-Islamism, if you will. But Yasser Qadi did not see it that way. He saw me as the enemy, as evil, because I spoke critically against some of the ideas of Muhammad Ali. Because he's beyond reproach, because he was an icon, lionized, because of his sports. And nobody is beyond reproach. Every individual and leader, or hero or not, can be criticized. And that is what it is to be an American. 
We don't all have to toe the line of every Muslim leader, every American leader, or whatever it might be. Yasser Qadi felt different. So again, these previous radicals, I think, use their positions to get notoriety along mainstream America, if you will. The New York Times then has multiple pieces about them and how wonderful they are and they found the light. And what that does, though, is continue to set the bar very low. This week, I think Barry Weiss had an imam from Duke University on her podcast and talked to him about anti-Semitism, and it was very, very illuminating. He talks about how he grew up reading the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. I think his name is Imam Antepli at Duke University. Talked about how it was in his blood to hate Israel, to hate Jews, and when he learned about his faith, learned about the West, he began to reject that and then rejected anti-Semitism and rejected anti-Zionism. And now has visited Israel multiple times as part of projects, etc. That's all well and good. That's wonderful. But these previous radicals, as an as as enamoring as their story might be of coming to terms with it, are they treating the disease? I visited Duke University four or five years ago. The newspaper there, the Muslim Student Association, took me on full head, full head of steam targeted me, made the security situation for the speech difficult, and we had to then move it out to the peripheries of campus. I was told that somehow that this anti-Muslim speaker was coming. I spoke to their newspaper two or three times. They had very defamatory pieces that ran on me before I came and then arrived. They listened to my talk, wrote a piece about it afterwards, which said basically that their previous reporting was wrong, that there was very little to, perhaps this, there was a lot to disagree with when it came to the liberals as far as policy and Americanism, etc. But at the end of the day, they did not see me as anti-Muslim. And they reported, at least the student reporters actually did well in a report the next day after I left. But all that, having said all that, that imam did not speak up in my defense, did not. Maybe he was off campus that week, I don't know. But he knows about the existence of the Muslim Reform Movement and a lot of our work nationally and globally. And if you look at his work, he doesn't take on the root cause, which is political Islam, which is the Islamic State concept, which is the AKP party in Turkey, which is Erdogan's party, which is the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, the Islamist groups in America. He doesn't take these populist supremacist Sharia supremacist groups on, but simply talks about a symptom of anti-Semitism and that endears him to the public. Now, is that his truth? Maybe. But I think he needs to be pushed. And again, previous radicalism does not create an air of legitimacy. And I think if you look and others, you see Ismail Royer now, a former care operative that went to prison for being part of the paintball jihadist in northern Virginia. And he goes to prison, comes back, and now is, uh, I don't know if he's still with Georgetown's Center for Religious Liberty, but again, normalizing his presence as somehow becoming an expert because of his imprisonment on radical Islam. Again, surely has a lot to contribute, surely can be part of the mix. 
but do we elevate them to a presence in which he's done very little work to dismantle the ideology of political Islam and all the organizations, including the one he got radicalized by, the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Very little was said. Not dismantling the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamist movements, Wahhabism and otherwise. Yes, he speaks about some of those ideologies now, but I think we can do better. So when it comes to leadership, I believe it needs to be those... And this is my opinion, open for debate. But it needs to be those Muslims that are honest and speak the truth about the penetration of Islamism and Sharia supremacism in all the institutions from the governments of Pakistan and Imran Khan and his manipulation of the daughter of the nation, Afia, to the Saudi government and its manipulation of Wahhabism and radical Islam and Salafism. For example, last week they had a rave. Yes, there was a large rave concert with dance music and David Guetta and all these others that are known sort of uh, uh, techno music uh, types. And, and you'll see it, just Google it, rave in Saudi Arabia. And now they're all saying, oh, Saudi Arabia is reforming. Saudi Arabia is coming to the 21st century. Well, is it really? I mean, in one way... Certainly, there's nothing to, no doubt that behaviors in which people can dance in public and start to do things that weren't done before will begin to erode the hold of government. There's no doubt that that will have an effect. But, again, one of the litmus tests I've taught you and ta discussed on this program is that is this being mirrored with theological deconstructions of the need to dance publicly, for men and women to be in the same functions together, to, to have freedom of expression of music and art and poetry. Is it coming from imams and clerics in Saudi Arabia? No, none. Bin Salman basically said it was okay to have a concert, and they, they imported a concert and did it as window dressing. So without theological modernizations and interpretations, it means nothing. And secondly... Bin Salman is still running a mafios, mafioso dictatorship in which people are still imprisoned for disagreeing with the government and trying to disagree with clerics and jurists and others and, and, and uh, pressing like on a Christian Facebook page and other ridiculous crimes. They call crimes which are simply freedoms of expression. So to say that Saudi Arabia is modernized is, is, is nonsense. So this is the truth that you need to be looking for. Do we call, do Muslim leaders actually call for truth consistently and cite the same diagnosis and reject, reject as being the dregs of humanity, the Afia of Siddiqis of the world and the Tariq Mahenes and the governments that are brutal dictatorships alike? There has to be consistency. They can't basically cherry-pick little ideas here and there and then ignore the big ones that are the primary things we need to confront. We can do better. Yes, I agree. Organizations, for example, as much as I disagree with the left, far-left politics of the ACLU, there's some merit in American traditions having the not only public defenders defend the most vulnerable, but groups like the ACLU, we've seen the ACLU do great work against Islamism in which certain schools like Tariq bin uh, 
uh, Aziz Academy that was forcing kids to pray and others by using charter school money in Minnesota and Minneapolis, and it actually ended up shutting it down. So the ACLU did great work there, and there's no doubt that whether it's a defense of people accused of rape or murder, whatever it might be, there are some cases that will, as we've seen with the death penalty, for example, certain states have put a moratorium on it for a while because there were people on death row that shouldn't have even been convicted. It shows that we do need some justice reform, at least in the way evidence and other things are put together. But that's one thing in a country in which you have a broad range of ideologies, in which you have mainstream centrist America, where you have the faithful communities that have folks that are driving our children to serve in the police, to serve in the military, to serve in this country in the most moral civil society in the planet, I believe. But Muslims yet in the West, have not developed that centrist, mainstream, pro-American, pro-police, pro-military, pro-constitutionalism organizations. And instead, now the main organizations speak on our behalf are driving groups that are defending Al-Qaeda operatives, that are defending ISIS operatives, and not doing anything to drive our mainstream kids to want to die for this country instead of wanting to die for jihad. We can do better. Is it really priority for our organizations to be defending Afia Siddiqui or to be defending Tariq Mahana? Read his crap that he wrote. It is, it is, it is vile and anti-American. I would love to debate him at any time on these issues when he gets out from his 17-year sentence, which should have been 30. But we can do better. The bar should be higher, and we should no longer use former radicals as our leaders and and radicals as our conspiracy uh, 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 icons that somehow are martyrs. This has got to stop, and it is a deeper pathology than simply the Free Afia movement or simply one or two organizations or individuals. Thank you so much for listening to me this week. It's great to be with you. Always love sort of uh, talking about the things that you just won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, this is Reform This. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and at Reform This Radio, and share this podcast with your friends. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.